Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and I'm delighted to invite our guest today, Don Miguel Ruiz, Jr. Don Miguel is a Toltec Nagual, a master of transformation. He is a direct descendant of the Toltecs of the Eagle Knight lineage, and he's the son of Don Miguel Ruiz, the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Four Agreements. He has just come out with a new book called The Five Levels of Attachment, Toltec Wisdom for a Modern World. His book combines the wisdom of his family's traditions with the knowledge gained from his own personal journey. Along with his family, he leads workshops, retreats, and power journeys around the world. And so it gives me great pleasure to welcome you. Don Miguel, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Miriam. It's a pleasure and an honor to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Tell us what a Toltec is and how are you part of this auspicious lineage? Well, the, the word Toltec or the name Toltec uh, is uh, Nahuatl for the artist. In English, it would be artist. So in our tradition, we refer to ourselves as Toltec uh, and mostly because of that definition. I am the artist of my own life. And as a lineage, we come from an oral tradition and the uh, the thing about oral tradition is that usually goes by living memory. So we go as far as my great-great-great-grandfather, Don Ezequiel, actually, uh, my grandmother's grandfather, who lived to be 116 years old. Wow. And, yeah, his long life, longevity. So he, uh, he lived mostly through the 1800s, and, and you can say that he's a, an individual who saw the new Spain before it turned into Mexico. So the thing is that uh, when, when the Spaniards came to uh, Mexico, to Meso- Mesoamerica, uh, a lot of the traditions had to go underground uh, because with, uh, with the Spanish came the Catholic uh, Catholicism, but also the Holy Inquisition. Mm-hmm. So the, the Catholicism had a, uh, did a great job of, of adapting and merging the existing tradition to its own. You know, example, the Virgen de Guadalupe is an example of that. But... Uh, a lot of families had to uh, share their traditions through oral history, which means from generation to generation, they share what they knew and said it in a way that's mostly through stories, through lessons and such. So every family is different. So in my family, I, I myself, I'm a mestizo, which is a combination of, uh, of, of uh, native uh, Mesoamerican as well as uh, Spanish descent, basically European and American. And the, my, family's tr- my father's side of the family comes straight from that lineage. So my, my, when my uncle, my, sorry, when my great-grandfather, Don Ezequiel, began to teach uh, during the 1800s, he could only teach th- uh, through the family and a couple of other people. Then he taught it to his son, Don Leonardo, and Don Leonardo began to teach slightly outside the family, but mostly just inside the family. Then it came to my grandmother, uh, Madre Sarita, who really opened the doors and began to teach uh, outside the family. She actually opened up a temple and began to give lectures and sermons across well, her area of living. So she moved from Guanacatlan, Jalisco, to, down to San Diego, California, where she has actually now a member of the, the San Diego Women's Hall of Fame for keeping the tradition alive. Mm. And, and then her son, uh, Don Miguel Ruiz, is my father. He really opened the doors 
and shared the, uh, the knowledge with everyone and down to me and my brother, Jose. Mm -hmm. So you can say that uh, in the lineage that we have in living memory, we go as back as Don Ezequiel, who says that, who said that we come from the Totec Eagle Knights and that we come from that descendancy. And mm -hmm. that's the thing about oral tradition. You always have to uh, give it a grain of salt, you know, a, a bit of uh, a skepticism. But the lessons that it, they teach us is what matters the most. And one of the things that how this tradition pa gets passed on is a combination of stories and anecdotes. But mostly it's, a, uh, it's an apprenticeship of life, learning how to have life teach you everything you need to know about not, not, not only about how to survive, but how to engage, how to live, how to enjoy what li life is. And as we listen to life teach us these lessons, both the good and the bad, the total tradition comes in and allows us to understand it and use it as instruments for our own transformation. Mm -hmm. So each generation shares it and in its own unique way. And when me and my brother Don Jose and myself began our apprenticeship, it was during a, one of those transitional moments in the tradition of our family. Uh, my grandmother, being a faith healer, she taught all of these traditions through sermon and through the action of or the ceremonies of faith healing. But when my father came in, him being a, a neurosurgeon, a, a surgeon, coming in, combining the two worlds together, he really put it in a language that we could understand what he referred to as common sense. Uh, something kind of exemplified between two books, one book called uh, Beyond Fear, by, written by Mary Carol Nelson about my dad, where he used to teach a lot about Quetzalcoatl, Tezcatlipocatl, and a lot of the symbology that existed within the Totec tradition. But one of the things my dad noticed is that a lot of people became very fanatical about those symbols that he began to strip it down to find, put it in a language that he referred to as common sense. Thus, he wrote a book called The Four Agreements. So that's during that transition lays uh, my apprenticeship with my family. Because from there, you can say that I learned the stories of Don Esiquio and Don Leonardo and Mare Sarita that was passed down, the story of Tezcatlipocatl, for example, the story of the stories of the sleeping giant and all these beautiful other lessons, but at the same time, I also learned the way my uh, the way my father teaches. An, an example would be, if we wanted to learn how to swim, he would push us into the pool. Mind you, he's a doctor; he knows how to take care of us. But he <laughs> he pushed us into the pool and uh, let us see our, and test our own strength. You know, after a while, saying, "Dad, help me! I'm, I'm I, I don't know how to swim," and he says, "Miguel." Your, your head is above water. You're swimming. Your body knows how to swim. Look what you're doing. And after I uh, calmed down, I saw what I was doing. I was doggy paddling, but I was swimming. And mm. I swam like that for a while. And it's a very similar way in the way he taught me how to give a lecture and speak in front of an audience. You know, he'd have us in a, we'd be going to a lecture and he'd invite us up to the stage and we would thought we were just going to wave at the audience, and he passes the mic and leaves the stage, leaving me behind. <laughs> I, I either had a choice of walking away or opening my mouth. How and old were you then? I was, I, he started doing that when I was like 21, 22. Uh -huh. uh, the, the, the pool part was like when I was eight or nine. But uh, 
since that those days that he used to do that to us, I haven't been able to shut up since. So I'm still <laughs> teaching. You know? And and that's and that's how uh, with that example it's, it kind of emphasizes how this tradition is taught. With the there's an emphasis on the lessons, but the important part is grabbing those lessons and applying them in life because. When we apply them in life, it's when those lessons stop being a, a history lesson and become something practical. And that's the essence of the tradition, the combination of life teaching us how not, not only how to live, but how to enjoy with a combination of using our knowledge, the information we have as an instrument for our own transformation. And at that is the essence of our books, including my own. I certainly resonate totally with that. The The books are so accessible mm-hmm. and commonsensical that you think you understand them. And yet, when you, when you really go into them, you have to contemplate them because they're so profound at the same time. So um, tell us about your uh, grandmother, Madre Sarita. Um, she challenged you, and uh, what was what was her challenge about knowledge? Well, it came I, when during my apprenticeship, the beginning of it. Uh, the, my very first assignment was to apprentice with my grandmother, and my grandmother's uh, first job for me was to translate for her. She didn't speak any English; she only spoke any uh, Spanish. She herself lived to be ninety-eight years old, and. By the time my apprenticeship was with her, it was she was already in her 70s. So my apprenticeship was to translate everything she said at a lecture, workshop, and and consultations, and even some of her healings. During that, when I, when we first started that that training, she would take it easy on me. She'd go very slow, and then as she hit her inspiration, whereas before she would pause to let me catch up and and translate for her. When inspiration hit, she began to speed up. And at that point, it was a matter of catching up with her. And my mind was trying to come up with all these things that she was trying to say. What's the correct way of saying? What does she really mean? And all the process of trying to translate the right thing, the essential thing, the perfect way of doing it. And by the time I said it, she was several sentences down down the line Mm -hmm. to the point where I wasn't catching up. So... I had to make a choice. I had to uh, continue trying or cut out everything she just said and catch up with her. And that happened several times. It's mostly because the pressure of not only trying to live up to what my grandmother was saying, but all the people, these people who showed up, they all paid money to listen to what she was saying. So they, they deserve a good translation. So the pressure was there. And that happened for about three years. And then, you know, all the time she looked at me, giving me this little smirk. <laughs> And then one day, you know, after a couple of years of doing that, like three or four, she turned to me and says, Miguel, have you figured out yet why you're having such problems translating for me? And of course, my reply was, you know, you're going too fast. You're not giving me enough time. I need to find what the right words is. And she says, and this is where, the, where, the, where your question comes in. What, are you using knowledge or is knowledge using you? And of course, I have no idea what she was talking about. And she repeated, if, you, if you're using knowledge, then you listen to what you're saying and you know almost immediately what the appropriate word is. But if knowledge is using you, 
then what's happening is that you're listening to my words and you're processing everything. You're right, looking for the right word, what's appropriate, what's according, and all these beliefs you have about what I'm saying. The good, the bad, the right, all those things. The problem is that eventually you stop listening to what I'm saying and you're totally paying attention to what's happening in your mind. At that point, your mind, your knowledge is in complete control and you're no longer listening to me. Imagine doing that to life. Imagine going around life living, but instead of actually living life and experiencing what life has to share and teach, you're too busy paying attention to the voice of your knowledge to even pay attention to what's happening right in front of you. It's like the equivalent of uh, drinking a glass of wine and instead of enjoying the flavors, you're saying, I can taste the bark, I can taste the cinnamon. This grape was grown on the dark side of the hill, so it's got that sense. And instead of enjoying what life has to give, your mind is telling you what should be, what has to be, and you're not living life. She says, at that point, listen to, imagine that the, my voice is the first voice you hear in your mind. Replace your voice and with mine. And when you open your mouth, it comes from what you hear. Practice that. Practice listening to life. Practice me being life. And with that, I began to improve. It got to the point where she said the first few letters of a word, and I was able to say it. But for that, I had to completely tune out everything around me. I had to tune out the sounds. I had to tune out my sight. I had to close my eyes. And the only thing that existed was her voice. This is the way my grandmother taught me how to meditate and shut down my mind, basically focus and concentrate my attention. So in this essence, she once she's taught me how to strengthen my will, but also how to listen to life as we're living through it. And this is the basis of the whole book. Because when we are so attached to our beliefs, our attachments to those beliefs completely act like a filter that doesn't allow us to see life as is, as life is presented before us. And we're too busy listening to our own mind, to our own filters, telling us what should be, that we don't see what is. So it's the my grandmother's lesson all over again from those days of at the age of 14. And my apprenticeship lasted roughly about 10 to 15 years, although you can almost say it lasted until the day she passed away, when, which was 20 years of her apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. And through that, it was just basically this essence of learning how to apply my grandmother's teachings. So... In essence, this is the challenge my grandmother faced me, gave me, and is present in this book. It is indeed the, the foundation for the whole book. And mm-hmm. yet we spend our whole lives trying to acquire knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, for someone like me, who spends my whole life reading books like yours, mm-hmm. you know, I'm very jealous uh, of all of the knowledge uh, that I've accumulated. And yet... Um, you keep on calling that into question. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, really love how you do it. Um, and you kind of point us in the direction of finding who it is who is listening. Mm-hmm. What is our essence? What is our 
authentic self. So yes. let's let's talk about how we put aside all that knowledge mm-hmm. and how do we dream our our real self? Well, there's the there's a couple of uh, definitions that I guess we have to establish in order for us to understand each other, you know, in opening the communications between us. The one is the understanding what knowledge is. Knowledge, completely uncorrupted, is a clean reflection of life. Knowledge is allows us to understand the world, allows us to not only see how the world functions and allows us to understand how to survive create and create the channels of communication between all of us but it also represents something of this understanding that we have of ourselves so you can say that at the very basis of knowledge it's a symbol down to the word which is the word is a symbol that allows us to understand an idea the thing about knowledge is that it's completely subjugated to an agreement. You can say that there are words where I, I can point to and you can see what the word means. And then there's words that doesn't have that defi- like a actual subject or material reference that we come up with simply by creating an agreement of a meeting. Like, for example, a chair, all I have to do is point to this object that I'm calling a chair and if, you, if I'm pointing to it and you've seen it, then you and I have a visual reference that allows us to understand. The agreement that we say, this is a chair, allows us for us to understand that. Then there are words that don't have the tangible physical reference, like love. Yes, we feel love, but in the description of it, there's, uh, there's a definition that you and I have to agree upon. You know, if, is it love? Is it, is it conditional? Is it a feeling? Is it expression? When should we say it? When not should we say it? And, and that's when everything gets kind of distorted because from, a, from every culture, every community, each word means something. You know, there's words in the, in, in the United States that mean something completely different in, in, in England, for example, or Wales. Like there's certain words where it uh, sounds cute, like, uh, like the word fanny pack. Here in America, it's something quite innocent, but in the UK, it means something completely different because it's, it's a curse word over there, almost, the word fanny. And, over, and, and same thing in Spanish, you know. It's like it, it, there's other words like that, that you say them here and they mean nothing. It means something cute, and you don't know if you're insulting someone from a different part of the world. And in that awareness, you have no idea. So the channels of communication have been distorted right then and there. The ability to understand how the expression, I'm responsible for what I say, but I'm not responsible for what you hear, replies on that. Like saying fanny pack is something, it refers to a bag that goes over your bum that in in the States we understand as fanny. But in, in the UK, it totally means something dramatically different because it refers to a, a woman's private area, but in a, in a very vulgar way. So you say the same word, and you're insulting someone. Mm-hmm. Knowledge, in that kind of essence, is completely subject to, an, uh, to that agreement, not only uh, on a universal, but also in a community sense, because the word is spelled exactly the same way, it's said in the same way, but it's completely subjugated to the community of each community and how it's used. 
does the same thing. For example, the story of of uh, tulips in the in the in the 1600s, a tulip was worth more than uh, the salary of an individual of for a whole year, and then at the end, uh, when it, the value of it was so high, you know, the, the people sold all their land to buy uh, tulip bulbs, and when it got so high, no one's Everyone says, I'm not buying anymore. It's too expensive. When that happened, the value dropped because nobody was buying it and a lot of fortunes were lost. Mm-hmm. The va- in that example, the value of a, of a tulip was an illusion created by an agreement, but a tulip was always a tulip. You know, a rose by any other name is still a rose. So you can say that in that kind of concept, knowledge is completely subjugated to an agreement. That, but at the same time, it's a variable. So an attachment, when we have an attachment to something, we, we don't want that to change. We don't want it to change because if something changes, then what we know no, becomes from true to false. And when we're subjugating ourselves to the conditions of conditional love or self-acceptance and we attach ourselves to an idea, to a belief, then the attachment to knowledge becomes very strong. And we need our knowledge to be right. And this is when this, the knowledge begins to distort itself. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, as we go up the levels of attachment, knowledge represents who I am. Or knowledge represents a belief that I base my identity with, a sense of self or a condition of my own self-love. Thus, knowledge at that point stops being a clean reflection of life and begins to be distorted because now knowledge has to fit my point of view. And every, uh, anything that doesn't fit my point of view is wrong, and everything that does is acceptable. Thus, a war, a war or a battle for whose definition is right Mm-hmm. So in, in that essence, we can see not only how knowledge becomes corrupted, but how we corrupt it by our own attachments. Is this what you mean by the concept of the smoky mirror? Yes, exactly. And the way I use the, the levels of attachment is basically also the story of the smoky mirror. In the Toltec tradition, this is called Tezcatlipocatl, which is, exactly means the smoky mirror. The smoky mirror represents that individual that is the, whose story is that represents one day that there's a smoke that doesn't allow them to see beyond the tip of their nose. And as they have that aha moment, they be, they're able to question and the smoke begins to dissipate and they get to see a mirror right in front of them. And in that mirror, there's a reflection. And in that reflection, you can say that the reflection represents knowledge and the individual life. But depending on which level of attachment you're in, your awareness will dictate how we see it. Now, if we apply it to the levels of attachment, at level five, which is fanaticism, my attachment to my belief is such that I will distort everything I perceive in order to fit what I want to see, which is an illusion. This is the smoke. This is the smoke that doesn't allow us to see life as is. It doesn't even allow us to see the mirror in front of us. The way to let go of that is to be skeptical but learn to listen. 
inability that we have to question, to put scrutiny into our beliefs, allows us the opportunity to see our very much our truth, which is our freedom of choice. I have a choice to say yes and no. You can say that we get to feel and experience something that we completely forgot, choice, which is about fanaticism. When we're so attached to a belief, we need it to be right. And when we need it to be right, it forces our hand, it forces our our actions on how we live life. Thus, we think that we don't have a choice but to believe. Because if the belief is wrong, then what does that say about me? What does that say about my own self-acceptance? It gets to the point where a be the belief, an idea, is more important than my own life. Where all we see, instead of seeing human beings, we represent symbols, liberal, conservative, uh, religious, non-religious, uh, vegetarian, mediators, vegan, uh, homeopathic. All we see is symbologies of a representation of idea and not a human being. When we let go of this attachment, we enter level four, which is internalization, which is basically we, we, in the story of the smoky mirror is seeing the reflection in the mirror, but we believe that re the reflection is the truth not realizing that me, life, is truth. We have, we have no awareness that, that, that the truth is represented by life, but that the truth lies in knowledge. And in this, the reason why we call it internalization is that we grab an idea and a belief and we internalize it by a system we call domestication. Everything we learn through the system of domestication is a system of reward and punishment. For every time we get it right, we get a reward which is acceptance. For every time we get it wrong, we get, we, we get a punishment, which feels like rejection. Since we're emotional beings, that reward feels like acceptance, which feels like love. And the punishment for not living up to that or getting it wrong feels the contrary, the opposite of love. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's such a powerful um, image because when you think of domesticating an animal, and in this case, we're domesticating young animals or, or children, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're give, using the the withholding or the giving of love as mm -hmm. the carrot and the stick. Yes, exactly. And and the thing about it is that when when we're children, we have a domesticator, which is our parents, our friends, our 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 teachers, so whoever it is that holds the attention of of our model. But as we become adults, we we become ourselves. It may, it may still be in the, in the image of our parents or the teacher or our friends or girlfriend or boyfriend or whoever it was, but eventually we're the ones who domesticate ourselves. For example, if I have an image of myself, say I'm the son of Don Miguel Ruiz and I'm not, not supposed to take things personal. I'm always not, uh, I'm not supposed to make assumptions. I, I, I see, uh, I don't, I don't take things personally. I'm always impeccable with my word. If I don't live up to any one of those, I can judge myself. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, if I used the, the symbology of the Toltec tradition, instead of the four agreements, I have the four conditions of my personal freedom. I can only say I can live up to and have my freedom if I subjugate myself to these conditions in the shape of these four instruments of transformation. You have to totally distort it the knowledge of the, of the four agreements. So in that essence, this is what we refer to as internalization. I use what I believe in order to modest, modify myself to fit this idea, and I use domestication to do so. 
And only when you fit that ideal uh, do you feel that you are worthy of your own self-love or something. Yeah, exactly. And then from from that point of view, we can see how fanaticism, we can even go up to level five and what gives fanaticism its strength. It's not anger or hate. Those, those, those are prejudice. Those three things, among other things, are just instruments, or you can say the, the whips that we use to domesticate ourselves and others. The real, the real motivator for fanaticism is conditional love, the distortion of love. So you can say that the story of the, the, the smoky mirror is also the, the, the story of the, of the shift between conditional love and going into unconditional love. So you, you can say the way we let go of level four and in going into level three is the moment where we stop internalizing ourselves or domesticating ourselves through the eyes of the judge and the eyes of the victim to live up to an expectation. And we begin to accept ourselves for who we are. You can say that the reason why we're able to let go of, of fanaticism is to think that and become aware that my life is worth something, that my life is worth more than an idea. When we're able to see that and, and be able to not only say that my own life is worth something, we begin to see that the life of someone else is worth something. Because at level five, it's so easy to kill someone when all we, all we see is a symbol. We don't, we're not even killing a human being. We're, we're, we're killing a personification of something we don't agree with. Mm-hmm. But if we see them as human beings, then it's a, it's a totally different thing. It's a totally different perspective. So it starts with ourselves. So when we let go of level five and let go of level four, we do it with the key, which is to accept ourselves for who we are at this very moment, to become aware that every single self-judgment I have is an agreement or I've, something I've said yes to. If I've, if I've used the four, four agreements as a, the four conditions, it's because I've said yes to the four conditions. So at a moment of becoming aware that I've done it, I become completely aware that at the core of every belief I have, there is a yes and there's a no, and that's up to me. So I become aware that after all these years of believing these distortions, these conditional loves, that I become, take on full responsibility of my intent. And when that happens, forgiveness and compassion is the key out. I forgive myself, which means I accept the truth of my actions and I let it go. Meaning by that, I will no longer carry the weight of my own judgments. I will not carry the weight of my own conditional love. And I accept myself for who I am. The moment that happens and we go into level three, identity, it's the moment where I begin to no longer distort knowledge. I no longer corrupted by my personal importance or my ego. I let knowledge be itself. You can say that it could be expressed in this way. There's a difference between the search for the truth and the search to be right. If if we're searching for the truth, we accept the truth either good or bad, right or wrong, whether we like it or not, we accept the truth. But when we're searching to be right, then we won't accept the truth. We'll only look for that thing that allows us to be right. So when we go into level three, the main element is I look for the truth and it can be expressed through knowledge. 
but allow it, I allow it to be a clean reflection of life. So, so this, say, goes, this goes back to what um, your grandmother was telling you, that knowledge is a tool that you use to understand the world rather than something that uses you. Exactly. And in the story of the smoky mirror, there's the moment where the, uh, the person looking, Tascatlipoca is looking into the mirror and sees that there is knowledge and then there is him. And they're both the same, but at least there's a first awareness that I am a living being, and knowledge is a reflection. But mm-hmm. we, we, but knowledge. So knowledge is, is the composite of everything that we have experienced on our mm-hmm. journey. Exactly, it's, it's, it's the symbiotic relationship. I, I think, therefore, I am. Mm-hmm. It's that basically, I, I have an identity that allows me to understand. And just by saying that, that I'm explaining what knowledge is. Knowledge allows me to understand the world, allows me to interpret it, allows me to comprehend it. And when we see, see ourselves through the eyes of identity without conditional love, then our identity becomes a symbol, just like a word, just like anything that allows us to understand the world. And I am a living representation of it without conditions. The thing about it is that as we go down five, three, and, and uh, five, four, and three, how we see knowledge also begins to reflect how we relate with the people around us in our life. At level five, I domesticate everyone to live up to my own expectation. At level four, I do the same, but there's a sense of flexibility. I, the, like a no is somewhat respected, where at level five, a no is not respected. Mm-hmm. At level three, the relationships I have no longer is a condition of them believing or p- being part of who I am. It's like being, I can be a vegan and my father and my family are all meat eaters, but that doesn't interrupt my relationship with them. It's mm-hmm. uh, my choice, my identity will allow me to be who I am, but it is not a catalyst or a condition by which I relate to the people around me. I am no longer using knowledge to uh, to be the obstacle between me and the people I love. And you don't feel that you need to impose your views of the world on them. It's kind of live and let live, honor yeah. them and honor yourself. Yeah, exactly. Like if, if they like how I live, they'll ask me and I'll share it. But mm-hmm. if they're not asking, I'm not going to put my nose where it doesn't belong. <laughs> it's, 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 That's a, it's never a good idea to put your nose where it doesn't belong. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we, 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 it's like going from a, a sense of disrespect at level th- of five and four into a level of respect, which is a three, two, and one. And the way we let go, if we, if we continue with the story of, of the smoky mirror, going from level three to level two, is becoming aware that at, in our belief system, at the very root of every single idea we have thought, there, at the very root of it, there is a yes. There is nothing in my belief system that's a, that I say no. Everything I say no is not in my belief system. I might be saying yes to a, neg- a negative aspect, but I have the choice to believe it or not. If I, so if, you, you hmm? mean, by saying yes, you mean something that you accept into your belief system. That mm-hmm. is a yes, and something mm-hmm. that you reject is a no. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's the thing. When I say no, basically it's something that I don't agree with, and a yes is something that I, I, I say I agree with. And when I say yes, I'm giving that belief a life, and it becomes a part of my belief system. 
So at the very root of it, I become aware of a separation between me and my mind. I become aware that my beliefs are only life because of me, and I'm saying yes. So my identity, my sense of self, I recognize that my, my identity is an empty symbol whose definition is subjugated to my own agreement, and I'm the one saying yes to that agreement. So there's a, that, there's a separation in the story of the smoking mirror. I become aware that the reflection is just a clean reflection of life and that me life is the truth. So when I have this awareness of saying me life is the truth, then we can easily go to level one because I've already accepted that I am alive and being alive is the truth. What am I? I don't know. But I know that I'm alive and that anything to describe it is an agreement that I will use to describe my authentic self. Even the word, the authentic self, my authenticity, is a name to describe this living being that's animating this body, this living being that's giving power to my thoughts, this living being that allows me to move and create, to manifest. I can call it spirit if I go through the route of religion. Through science, I can call it energy. But I know each one of those words describes the authentic self. And here's the key. When I began writing the book, I really believed that the personification of level ones was the Dalai Lama or Sai Baba or any one of the magnificent spiritual teachers that the world has to offer. But then I realized even someone at level five in their complete fanaticism is the authentic self. They're just not aware of it. So you can say that awareness is like a flower. When it's completely open, it sees that the whole full potential of life you can say of open flowers at level one, where it sees everything is perfect because it exists, and all I need to, to go in any direction in life is me to say yes to that direction, and I can take a step towards that direction. Constantly, if I don't like it, I can change my mind because I'm always at starting point. Well, that, we, that's what our evolution, uh, evolutionary journey through our life is, is exactly. being able to change our mind and accepting new information and exactly. integrating it. Yeah, and, and, and as we grow attached to our belief, imagine that flower beginning to close. It begins to close at level two. It begins to close at level three, four, and completely closes at level five, where it believes there's only one option. Because my so, filters allow me, allow me to see one thing. So let, let's, let's talk about attachment. Yes. Can you describe it a little more in depth for us? Yeah, for me, the, uh, an attachment is when we adapt something that's foreign to us as part of who we are. So you can say an, an attachment could be like an example of a, of a monkey reaching into a monkey trap, grabs the banana, and also, it's, the monkey finds himself trapped by this, uh, by this trap, of course, because of the fist and the, the shape of the banana. It doesn't allow it to escape. All, all the monkey has to do is let go of the banana, and the hand comes out. But the attachment to that banana is so strong that eventually the banana becomes more important than the monkey's life and is willing to die for it we can use that image as an extreme of level five, but something happens throughout our life where when we begin to feel safe in what we know, because one of the things about knowledge is that it allows us to understand the world. 
Let's, for example, let's, let's, let's use the example of an assumption. An assumption I understand in this way. The Gestalt principle of closure allows us, uh, is, a, is a principle that allows us to understand that if we draw a ge geometric shape, uh, if we draw a circle and we don't close it, we're able to, with our mind, to close that circle. If we draw two sides of a triangle, our mind is able to close the gap and, and project a third line. Visual artists use this all the time. It's, we can say that it's the mind wanting closure, wanting to know the full story. So when we apply this with knowledge, we want to know the full story. So we have portions of the truth, but since we want the whole, we become, we've tried to create a story or an image that allows us to close the loop. So, now, so what you're saying is that um, when we're listening to other people, we, we, because of our attachments, we may not really listen deeply to what they're saying, but mm -hmm. we assume that we understand and we fill in the details. Yeah, exactly. Like for example, if I, if I were to tell you, this is how love feels to me. Now, for, for you, you have no idea what it feels like for me because you don't know what it feels like to be in this body. But I'll describe what it feels like and then in the description of that feeling, you begin to close the gaps with your own experience and you begin to project in what you know onto what I'm describing. And the same thing of how coffee feels or certain foods yeah. taste. Yeah. And we begin to fill in the gaps of what the story is being presented with what we already know. And we say, oh yeah, you know. And, and we have this understanding. Now mind you, at that point, it, it might be a very clear reflection of what we already know but it doesn't stop it from being an assumption we've exactly. closed we've yeah. closed we closed the gap with something that allows us to understand one another the and that's what the fifth agreement is so important for because mm -hmm. it's forcing you to listen really deeply with respect yeah exactly to me the action of being skeptical is not putting my ears and going na 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 i'm not <laughs> listening to you to me being skeptical is an action with every yes, something will be done. For every no, something won't be done. So when I agree to something, I'm saying yes to that. When I disagree, I, I'm stopping the action of, of not allowing that thing into my mind. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we get into an automatic reaction and we do it automatically even without thinking. Being skeptical is basically withholding my yes, withholding my no, and I'm going to allow myself to listen more before I give up my yes and my no. Mm -hmm. To me, that's what skepticism is. Mm -hmm. So when we're dealing with knowledge and with an attachment, for example, if we're so attached to what we believe that we want it to be the truth because we don't want it to change, the thing about it is that the truth continuously changes. It changes throughout history. It was once, there was, it was once it was a truth once that the world was flat. It was even once a truth that it was impossible for me to speak to someone so far away sitting from the living room of my own home 150 years ago before the, uh, Alexander Bell came in with the telephone. That was exactly the truth. But uh, fast forward 150 years, I'm not even connected to a landline. Right now I'm using Wi-Fi to speak to you. And it's the truth that I'm using electricity. And I'm, you and I are in two totally different 
physically geographic locations. It's the truth. 150 years ago, that was not the truth. It was science fiction. Now it is the truth. The truth always changes. So in a time where theoretically uh, ignorance should be something of the past because information has never been this available to us, we're becoming more attached to what we know because there's never been a time where our beliefs can be challenged so quickly. Mm -hmm. So we attach ourselves to something that makes us feel safe, that allows us to understand ourselves. And when we close off like that, we stop listening to the world. So, mm -hmm. Don Miguel, I, I'd like to read a passage from your book that I just thought was so wonderful. And it's just to this point. You say, when we become too attached to an ideal, the first thing we lose is respect. First yes. for the people around us and eventually for ourselves. Mm -hmm. While our points of view may differ, we are all the product of the same source. And the only mm -hmm. thing that separates us is our attachment to our own point of view and our attachment to the belief that others must share it. This yes. is where we begin putting conditions on our love for one another. Mm -hmm. And this is the source of conflict. Yes. Yes, because if, if we have respect for one another, then... I know where I, my beliefs are, and I have complete respect to what I say yes to and what I say no to. I have complete respect to my free will, to my intent. Mm -hmm. If I have that same respect, I have that respect for myself, then I can share it with you, which means I respect what you say yes to and what you say no to. You are the creator of your own life, and your chisels are your yes and your no. So when we have respect for one another, we'll listen to the way each one of us have created our dream, or you can say how we created or manifested our, our belief system. Yeah. And, and if when, belief in freedom of choice, then you have to believe in freedom of choice for the other person as well. Exactly. So you can see how at that point, the corruption begins to settle in when, when, I, when I, I'm so attached to my belief that what I'm saying yes to has to be yes. And anything that contradicts it, I, I will reject it because if I accept any contradiction, then what I believe will be a challenge. Mm -hmm. So I'm already already right there. I'm no longer accepting or respecting my yes and my no because I'm no longer giving it, it a power. I'm no longer respecting my power over it. I'm letting what I believe control it. So right. if I'm doing that to myself, imagine what I'm going to do to you. Mm -hmm. I'm totally not going to respect your yes. I'm totally not going to respect your no. Poor you. You don't know any. You, you don't know better. So let me do this for you. <laughs> and and this is where the the war begins because all of a sudden, I'm not going to respect your your point of view because if you say yes to something I don't believe in and I agree with you, then what does that say about me? Well, of course I'm going to impose my will onto you, and this is what we've known in the world. The whole concept of imposing my imposing and subjugating wills is the relationship we understand, and this is exactly what domestication is. But when we have respect for one another. We engage one another from the point of view of, of respect for my yes and my no and my respect for your, your yes and your no. And when we have res that mutual respect for one another, when we create the dream of us, is based from the mutual respect we have for one another that what we say yes to is not based on a condition but based on a, this, on a free the mutual agreement between mutual us agreement. to create something together. And it's Why beautiful. Wise words indeed. Uh, Don Miguel, uh, how do we find more about your book and your uh, workshops? 
Well, there's uh, there's two websites. Uh, my personal website is miguelruizjr.com, and then my, there's my dad's miguelruiz.com. And in that one, you can find uh, – well, actually, in both of them, you can find all three of us, me, my brother, and myself. And at the very essence, you can also get uh, uh, find us on Facebook, and we, we have that, things there too. Great. Well, that's all the time that we have for today, and I, I would like to thank Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. for being with us to talk about his book, The Five Levels of Attachment, Toltec Wisdom for the Modern World. Don Miguel, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's, it's a truly an honor, uh, honor, Miriam, to being on your show, and thank you so much for the opportunity. Before we go, I want to tell you about an event you won't want to miss. It is the third annual Afterlife Awareness Conference that will be held June 21st through 23rd in St. Louis, Missouri. If you've ever wondered what happens when we die, or if you're struggling with grief and want to be assured that your loved one is still close by, this conference has the answers. Learn about the world beyond death from mystics and mediums, ministers and medics, including noted leaders in the field, such as Dr. Eben Alexander, Dr. Raymond Moody, and mediumship researcher Dr. Julie Beichel. They'll also be having gallery-style readings by psychic mediums, with special presentation by Suzanne Northrup and a pre-conference workshop on conscious dying with shamanic practitioner Linda Fitch. At the conference, you can receive hands-on instruction in after-death communication and out-of-body travel, as well as private readings and counseling sessions that will be available during this amazing weekend. So for more information, visit www.afterlifeconference.com or call 541-549-4004. And now we're going to close with our track of the week called Dare to Be by Jana Stanfield. I've come a long way down this road Always learning as I go But you can't look backward and get ahead It's time to lead and not be led Goodbye limitation Hello liberation Goodbye frustration Hello to living my life by my design Breaking these chains that bind my mind Learning to color outside the lines Hello to living my life by my design Breaking these chains I 
Jana Stanfield, another member of the Positive Music Association. You can find out more about Jana at janastanfield.com. That's J-A-N-A-S-T-A-N-F-I-E-L-D.com. And to learn more about the Positive Music Association, go to positivemusicassociation.com. Be sure to visit our website at ncreview.com for more great interviews, book and film reviews, and lots more. That's ncreview.com, media for enlightened living. I hope you'll join us next week when we will be learning all about the latest techniques in meditation from Ajayan Boris and hearing from Gina Sitoli about her one-woman spiritual cabaret. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>